topic for tonight. The title is Silencing Mullock, Refuting the Right of Abortion. Bit of play on words there. Uh, if you're just listening and haven't read the title, uh, right is spelled R-I-T-E, like a ritual, a sacred right. And that's truly what it's become. There are those out there who are acquiring abortions, murdering their babies as a rite of passage, as a ritual. And this is nothing new. In fact, I'm not completely unconvinced that there's not, just as they're not completely unconvinced, there's not some demon out there posing as Gabriel and uh, bamboozling people into creating false religions that there isn't one out there named Moloch. Um, but here we have the word of God, Leviticus 20, verses 1 through 5. If you don't know who Moloch is, you're about to learn. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who give any who gives any of his children to Moloch shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Moloch to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Moloch and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people. Him and all who follow him in whoring after Moloch. So this text tells you who Moloch is. He is a false god of the pagan nations. He's a god to whom they offered children as sacrifices. And archaeologists have found statues to Moloch. And he has his arms stretched out. And they would superheat the arms and, and lay the child in Moloch's arms. Wherein the child would then melt. Um, and burn alive. So one of the interesting things about this text is that it doesn't just apply to the people of Israel. The strangers who sojourn in Israel also have this applied to them. That's not true for certain other laws, especially in Leviticus. Sojourners get a pass on certain things. Which tells us that this text is not just uh, about ritual worship this is about life and death. Especially verse 4. If the people of the land close their eyes, they, 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 they don't follow through, they don't execute the man who's slaughtering his children on the altar of Moloch, they do not oppose him, then God will oppose them. And he will cut off all who follow those who are worshiping Moloch, even by proxy in this case. And for far too long, a good chunk of the Christian church closed their eyes to the slaughter in the land. Even just um, 
I forget the exact date, but around the time Roe v. Wade was passed, the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution that essentially permitted abortion in certain, I believe there were certain circumstances attached, but they basically said, you know, this is not, this is a political issue. We're not really getting entangled in this. And that's, you know, the largest denomination, not a nomination denomination uh, in the United States. And generally considered, generally considered one of the more conservative ones, at least at certain periods of history, not that particular period of history, which is part of why that happened. But still, this is not something that the people of God at large have been consistent or adamant about opposing. And, and, and some have, don't hear me saying that they haven't, but uh, there has been an upsurge in opposition in more recent years, and this is good, and I praise God for it. And it appears that it is culminating in our current cultural context in which uh, we have the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade in the states, and along with it, uh, many of the states who are in the process, like Louisiana, of, of criminalizing abortion completely, and doing so actually in, in some cases in an actually just way, uh, they're probably going to get away with it, and, and praise God for that. But what that means for us is that we need to be prepared, we need to be ready to explain not that, that this, this isn't just about some Republican power grab, this isn't about political maneuverings. God's word has a lot to say about this subject because it has a lot to say about murder. And that's precisely what abortion is. But we need to recognize that the other side of this issue is also not a purely political maneuver. It's not purely about Democrats or the left. This is spiritual warfare. Very interesting book. I recommend reading it. Uh, that Hideous Strength by C.S. Lewis. It's a dystopian sci-fi novel. And it's very good. Uh, the whole Space Trilogy is. But what and spoilers, I guess, <laughs> slight spoilers. Um, I'll try to be vague. Kind of, it's it's fairly obvious. But if you don't, I guess, cut what you're hearing for the next fifteen seconds or something. Um, what you learn is that behind the the dystopian government organization type thing that's ruining everyone's lives stands a demon, just an actual demon. And, and Lewis's point with that is that, that that's, that's what stands behind these things. It, it, the, the, the men involved are sinful, they're responsible for their sins, but there's spiritual battle being waged. And I think Lewis does a good job of this. Even if we discover that, there ain't nothing we can do but believe the truth and or you know in the case of the book have spiritual aid um but it's important to recognize that that this is not a mere political opinion this is not about being right-wing or conservative this is about being a christian being biblical um 
as far back as the w- one of the earliest uh, Christian documents um, is the the uh, Didache. Um, the, the Didache was just a list of here's things we believe, um, and here's ways you're supposed to live. Very first or second century document, it condemns abortion and infanticide completely, roundly and solidly. So this is not something that, uh, again, has been uh, just a recent political maneuvering, which is one of the uh, zeitgeist going around at the moment. Uh, Christians haven't opposed this until the last two decades. No, it's not the case. (laughs) From the beginning. And as I read to you, Leviticus 20, and we're gonna as we're gonna see all throughout the scriptures, it opposes not just murder, not just child murder, but also child murder that happens from the womb. So we're gonna see that as we go through. So the plan is to present a positive case from the scriptures that abortion is murder, then to walk through uh, the, the the most common counter arguments. Then the best counter-argument, bad pro-life arguments that are also common, that don't get to the point, and then uh, ways to push things in an actual conversation toward the gospel. So that's the plan, that's the roadmap. It's going to take a minute. As always, my intros are also lengthy, but I think I need to set the stage for this some. So here we go. First, abortion is murder. If that's the case, we need to ask the question, what is murder? Well, to put it simply, is the taking of civilly or legally speaking innocent life. We know from other places in scripture that no one is innocent before God. Everyone is sinful and fallen. That's not the question. The, the question in view is, is, at what point is taking someone's life permitted by another human, human-to-human life-taking? Not death as a consequence of sin, natural, natural quote-unquote, really is a, a result of the curse of the fall. It's not the question. Rather, murder, the context of Scripture, is this taking of innocent life. Innocent being qualified is that they have not committed a crime that's also a sin that is worthy of capital punishment, worthy of life taking, or they have not assaulted someone in the moment in which their life is permitted to be taken, or they have not, uh, they're not engaged in just warfare. Any of those, if you don't fall into one of those categories, your life may not be taken by another person. If they do it, it's murder. Genesis 9-6 is our first kind of explication of this, and it gives the reason for it, which isn't significant. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So 
shedding of the blood of man equals by man shall his blood be shed. So there's a, a, a crime, a punishment, and the reason. Because man is made in God's image, and therefore an assault upon that image, a murder, is an assault upon the image of God. It, it, it's a proxy war against God. The, the, this is, all murder is an expression of hatred for God. It's the only way to get at him. You, you can't touch him. So the only way to get at God is to go after his image bearers. Side note, this is also the impetus behind transgenderism, defacing the image of God in oneself. Behind any kinds of, of perversions of that image or assaults upon that image, what lies behind it is a hatred for God. So that's Genesis 9, 6. And then we have, of course, Exodus 20, 13, 10 Commandments. You shall not murder. Pretty straightforward. And it elaborates on what is a murder later on. And we're going to look at some of those in a moment. So we have definition of murder. We got biblical texts. Point that out. And we also get at why it's wrong, why it's sinful. God explains it is an assault upon his image. So now we have murder defined. We need to figure out how is it that's a, that abortion is murder. And to be clear, I'm saying that any and all abortions are murder. It, it, any kind of cessation of pregnancy by ripping and tearing or poisoning or crushing or whatever of the child in the womb, of the fetus in the womb, of the whatever is in one's womb, it's murder. How is this, how or why is this murder? Well, a baby is an image bearer from conception. How do we know this? Let's look at some biblical texts. That same psalm I read to you in the prayer, I use as a prayer, Psalm 139, earlier in it, inter interestingly, uh, Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. That's just a metaphor for his mother's womb, by the way. He's not saying he was made in the ground. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So each person, while being formed, this implies that God is specially active in the formation. And also that he plans their formation prior to that formation. Which again, 
a disruption of that plan, an attempted disruption of the plan, rather, uh, is again, it, it is it is an assault upon God via a, an assault upon his image bearer. So we have Psalm 139. We have a very common text referred to here, Jeremiah 1.5. Very similar idea. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, obviously, the latter two lines are about Jeremiah specifically, but we can argue from implication. The first line, if God knows Jeremiah in the womb and is the one who formed him, yeah, so Psalm 139 as well, God is, God is the one who is forming the person in the womb. He's the one doing it. This is his creation that he's crafting. And we would dare to say no and kill it. Isaiah 44, 24. Now, this one is a metaphor but again, it's drawing upon a reality to make the point. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. God is not a passive creator of life. He's involved in some sense, in some way. He doesn't describe all the mechanisms. In the formation and creation of each person. And note the personhood, the image bearing described and, and, and applied to these ones who are being formed in the womb. There is no question about the Bible's position on this. And those who, of course, as there always are, argued against it. But generally speaking, they wouldn't even take most of the Old Testament seriously as scripture. So there you have it. Now, does the Bible speak directly against abortion? So, so I, I'm so far just simply arguing from implication. Abortion is murder because murder is defined in a particular way according to scripture and uh the formation of a child in the womb is described as, as uh, having full personhood, image-bearing, created directly by God. And so we ought not to intervene in that via murder, via killing, unjust killing. But does it speak directly against abortion? I believe it does. In the murder laws, the laws in which... Different kinds of murder are explicated from the you shall not murder part of the Ten Commandments. We get several descriptions of different kinds of, of, of uh, violations that lead to a capital punishment. That lead to death. I'm in Exodus 21. And I'm going to start in verse 12. Because it's, it's, it's a... It's a building case as it goes. Exodus 21, verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. 
straight up. There, there's your classic murder example. A man strikes another man. The man dies. Okay, you're guilty of murder. Um, there are qualifications for self-defense that are made in other parts of the law. So don't hear that text out of context and go, oh, well, so if I hit anyone for any reason, no, there are reasonable reasons in which you defend yourself and whatnot. Verse 13, but if you did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. There we go, next verse. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So there's man stealing, which this is a side note again. Those who would argue, you know, that different various uh, things during the North Atlantic slave trade are bad and wicked. You can, yeah, if they had been paying attention to God's law, there have been all kinds of people in trouble. Everybody, everybody on all kinds of sides of, of that whole deal were uh, stealing people and selling them. It's capital crime in God's law. Verse 17, whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. Um, and, and verse 15 and 17, there's context for that. I don't have time to go into it, but just don't get the idea from that, those two verses, that this is just a, like, a five-year-old punches his father in the leg and that they would kill him. That's, that's not what's going on there. Okay, just... Anyway, verse 18. When men quarrel and strike one, stri and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die, but takes to his bed. When it, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. So that's one where someone is struck by another person but doesn't die. So he didn't murder him, but he has to compensate him for his time away from his work and labor um, and to see to it that he recovers whatever he needs to recover. Verse 20, when a man strikes a slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. Note that. Slaves in Old Testament Israel had full human dignity rights when it came to if, if, if a master beat his slave and killed him, he's done for. He's toast. But if the slave survives a day or two, he's not to be avenged for the slave is his money. Verse 22. When men strive together, this is the one I'm getting to, and hit a pregnant woman so that her, chi her children come out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So here you have Basically, if, if she miscarries because she was nearby a conflict 
and was harmed during it. And she has a miscarriage. Then the one who hit her dies. Is executed for murder. These are all in the, these are all in the context of other laws about murder and the consequences. Um, and, and is the culmination of them because we see the uh, the life for life line here drawing from Genesis nine six, which says the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. It's elaborating on it, but it's drawing upon it. And there you have a, a, a text clearly about the uh, personhood the Bible is granting, the full legal uh, uh, rights under God's law of a, a full person, fully grown human, while he's in the womb. Right there. So God's word is clear. God, God, God's word is clear. His law is clear. Abortion is murder. The unjust taking of a life of an image bearer of God and deserves death under God's law. When we make this case from Scripture, those who would oppose the idea that abortion is murder and would rather say something like abortion is health care or something along those lines or abortion is reproductive justice or something like that. We should listen to the counter-arguments and be prepared to answer them. But we must make the biblical case clear. And the reason we must make it from the Bible is that you have two choices. In any case of ethics, in any case of justice, in any case of morality, you have two choices. Autonomy or theonomy. You have self-rule, self-law. I'm a law unto myself. Or a collective of us are a law unto ourselves. Or God's rule and God's law and God's ways. And if your creator has spoken, if your creator has said, this is how you ought to live. This is the way I've designed you to live. And to do this or that is wrong and deserves death is a violation of the created order, then we not only should listen, but must listen. Ought to. Is necessary. We must take heed of he who is speaking. So counter-arguments. Here's a few. You may have heard some of these before. I'm not going to go through every possible one because I think most of them boil down to one of these. These are not necessarily the best arguments, 
I don't think, honestly, there are any good ones. But these are the ones that you'll usually hear. Other ones that exist are usually so nonsensical that a five-year-old could dismantle them. So I'm not too worried about exposing you to those. Um, most of the argumentation against it when it when the news first released was people just posting pictures from The Handmaid's Tale. If you're not familiar with what that is, it's a feminist diatribe dystopian fiction. Don't worry about it, but it was rather goofy. Um, that was the extent of argumentation and, and screeching, quite a bit of screeching. Um, but there are people who have thought about it a little bit beyond that and might make an actual case. Here's one of them. Let's say you've presented the data I've just presented and you've made the case that I made there at the end that if, if Christianity is true, if God has made us, if, if he's made us in his image, then this applies to you no matter who you are, where you come from, and, and, and this means unequivocally that abortion is in fact murder. So something they might say is, you're imposing your religion on me. The answer is, to this objection, is yes. Yes, I am. There is no need to apologize for this or, or to try to, to counter this by endless nuance and qualification. Absolutely. And then the follow-up is, you're trying to impose your religion on me. Again, I called this a right, an R-I-T-E, right. And that's really what it's become. The initial arguments for abortion back in yesteryear, even before I was around, was that it would be safe, legal, and rare. It is none of those things now. I saw a recent study from, I believe it was the Guttmacher Institute, which is a pro-abortion think tank thing, something or other, and 99% of abortions, I think it was, yeah, I think, yeah, I think it ended up being 99%, are done for no given reason. No, not not because of economic situations, not because of rape, not because of incest, not because of uh, these various. Nope, just just gonna get one. You can find people celebrating their abortions, having parties. Not everyone is like this. And we should be compassionate to those who are either coerced by family by boyfriends who have sinned horrendously um, or strong-armed who are maybe even threatened. We should have compassion on those people. But those are not typically the people screeching about their abortions. They know that it's wrong. And not only do they know that it's wrong, but they actually know, know that it's wrong. People screeching about it know it's wrong too. We'll get to that but that they understand that what happened was, was wrong on so many levels. And, and we can absolutely show compassion to those people. But back to our objector, you're imposing a religion on me. Yes, there's no alternative. 
again, what what's what's their case for morality and ethics? And what's their argument against Christianity? Yeah, I, I, I'm not imposing just my religion. I'm imposing the truth on you. I'm asking you to live according to the truth of the way reality is. This is God's world. He made it. He told us how we ought to live in it. And you are kicking against the goads. Second possible object objection. You're telling women what they have to do with their bodies. Yes. Again, the answer. Yes. Absolutely. Because you don't have the right to do with your body whatever you please. You don't. Bodily autonomy is not a right. I, I heard uh, someone making that case today, one, one of these pro-murder advocates saying that bodily autonomy is basic human right. And, and unfortunately, the, I mean, he wasn't, uh, I don't think he's actually a Christian, but uh, he claims to be because Roman Catholic. And so, of course, he doesn't argue consistently in this manner, but he didn't push back on that. He granted her that, which was absurd. Bodily autonomy is not a basic human right. God has all kinds of commands about what we can and cannot do with our bodies. Our bodies belong to him. He made them. They're a gift. And so, you're telling women what they have to do with their bodies? Yes, but not I. God. God is telling you. And then you get into where you need to go, which is the truthfulness of Christianity from there. So one of the things I think that's necessary to do in these kinds of arguments is push back the smokescreen, which is what the abortion advocate is putting up, and get to the heart of the matter, which is their rebellion against their creator. Third possible counter-argument, what about rape and incest? When I was growing up, this was a, a, a common um, qualifier that was just given um, as a, uh, yeah, I'm against abortion, except for in these two cases. And to my uh, great sadness and regret, I, I used to say that too. Even right after I became a Christian. I just hit my microphone. That wasn't good. Uh, until I started studying the issue and dealing with it. Because that, that was the default position of, of people in my church, people in my family. So what about those two things? Well, the first thing to know is that God condemns those things completely and totally. Deuteronomy 22, 25 is an example of the condemnation of rape. Um, if in the open country a man meets a young woman who's betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. The death penalty for rape, scripture, it's described as the taking of life. So seriously God takes it. 
uh, historical examples for scripture is the rape of Dinah in Genesis and Tamar. Uh, I believe in, uh, I think it's in Second Samuel. It's during the reign of David. Uh, and Tamar's a, a double whammy because that's rape and incest. Because her brother is the one who rapes her. And in both of those cases, things go really bad for the rapist. And it is condemned roundly and soundly. Even uh, amongst people who are otherwise sinful out in the wazoo and other, uh, other areas. In the case of Dinah, her brothers go and slaughter the entire village of, of, the, of, of the, the man who raped her. So these things are roundly condemned and there's a civil penalty of death. You lead with that. Then you don't punish a child for the sins of his father. Also in scripture, Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Punish the rapist. In fact, most of the time, they don't, actually, I don't, I don't know, I don't think there's any uh, states that, Someone can correct me if I'm wrong about this. But as far as I know, there's not a single state in the country that has a capital punishment for rape. It's like God's law has a clear way to deal with this. But what you don't do is punish the child. And also in this context, I'm assuming the incest was also rape. Just that's a tacit assumption that's making in this case. If it's not, and they're still arguing for the abortion, the answer is just pretty clear. It just becomes a normal case. You say, no, it's still murder. And and also, why did you procreate with your with 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 your sibling? That's against God's law in other places as well. We we could go there, but um, I don't think I need to do that. Because uh, thankfully, that's in, in, in the consciences of most people have not been seared completely on that issue yet. So you do not punish a child for the sins of the father. You do not murder a child for any reason. Done deal. This next counter argument is the one that you'll be met with in most philosophy 101 classes. I had it in mind. This is the uh, one that he attempted to use. He actually explained in my upper level courses that he runs his lower level courses as an explicit attack upon Bible Belt Christianity. He goes after God with the problem of evil. He goes after most other uh, Christian positions on ethics and morals intentionally because so many people at the school were from the Bible Belt and were at least nominally or culturally Christian. You may have heard this one before. If you haven't, welcome to the club. 
It's often called the violinist argument. And the basics, basic shorter version of it goes like this. There's a world-class, famous, expert violinist who has a rare blood disease. And he is in a coma. He's a vegetable. And the only way to save him is if you are hooked up to him for nine months next to him in a separate bed can't move, can't live your life, can't do anything else. And you have to be hooked up to him, and there's a constant blood transfusion happening. After nine months, he'll come out of his coma, and he'll be fine and normal again, and you can go on your way, and everybody's good to go. But for those nine months, your life is over. You don't get to see anybody. You can't go out. You can't do anything. Um, you're, you're, you're done. You have to quit your job for that time you you can't or at least it's suspended and this is this is what you're doing now you're keeping this guy alive for nine months until everything finishes and and then he's uh able to wake up and and get back to doing what he's doing and the question that follows it is do you have a moral obligation to concede to the violinist request. That, that, that's the follow-up to the argument. And this works on selfish teenagers really well. People just out of high school, lives and careers ahead of them, stars in their eyes, and your philosophy 101 professor slaps you with this on the first day of class. And suddenly you're going, oh, man, that would be awful, wouldn't it? Giving up nine, nine months is a long time. It's almost a whole year of my life. I have to give that up for the whole, the whole time? Just keep this random dude I don't know alive? Ugh. I don't want to do that. And suddenly, you've been converted to the cult of Moloch. No joke seen it happen it's ridiculous that people even take this argument seriously but i'm going to strengthen the argument for them because this is a, a category that often you'll hear but i'm going to uh frame it using the violinist example to try to make it its strongest form i call this one the entopic violinist and i use that phrase just because that, that's the argument often used is what about this is what about rape and incest if you answer that then it then the follow-up is what about if the life of the mother is in danger if she carries through the pregnancy to the end if she has the baby she might or maybe very much certainly will die what about that Does she still have a moral obligation to carry through with the pregnancy even though her life is at risk? And when we hear that, it pulls on the heartstrings, it pulls on the emotions. So it's designed to do. We're Christians. We live and breathe and die by the word of God. 
uh, by our own imaginations and thoughts. God has made it clear, murder is wrong. Murder is wrong. It is sinful. It is wicked. In fact, remember from Psalm 139, those who are men of blood are those who hate God and speak against him with malicious intent. We can't forget that. And the violation of God's commands is deadly serious. Murder is wrong. No matter what nuances and qualifications you want to give to it. The right thing to do in the entopic violinist situation is try your darndest to save both. So the entopic, I never even got to explain the entopic violinist. So that's where if, if, the, if, you save, if you choose to save the violinist, you die at the end of it. And he lives. It, same scenario, but at the end of the nine months, you die and he, and he gets to walk away and live. Now, the doctors in the situation have a moral obligation to save the both of you. And that's exactly the answer here. You do everything you can to save both. If someone dies in the process, no one was murdered. No one was murdered. It's a horrific situation to be in. It's also extremely rare. Extremely rare. Again, in that same study, I think it was like that, that particular scenario, at least in that, in that study, and then that was a pro-abortion study, it was something around like 0.04. Per, it, it was low. Um, I'd have to look it up, but you can look it up if you want to fact check me. But it was less than 1% of people got abortions because their life was endangered by the pregnancy. But the moral obligation in the case is to try to save everyone's lives involved. Don't, don't just, oh, well, this could endanger my life. I might be in trouble here, so let me just go ahead and kill the baby. No. What nonsense is that? Well, it, it's the nonsense that arises from selfishness, from arrogance, from a hatred for God. He hasn't given you the life that you wanted, so you're going to take it by the horns of Moloch and offer your child up to him so maybe, maybe he'll give you the life you want. So whichever violinist you go with, the entopic or the normal one, do you have more obligation? Absolutely. To preserve life, to save it. Jesus says that love consists in laying down one's life for his friends, and we can expand that to loving your neighbor, laying down your life for another. What a way to, to show the gospel. We're Christians. Death is not judgment for us. It's a way to follow after our Savior. 
What a way to live your life than to die for another. But again, there's others involved. They have more obligations to save the both of you. Another problem with the violinist example is there's a category mistake. The violinist is not a baby. He's not. These are not the same things. Uh, he did not come to exist as a consequence of your actions. You do not have special responsibilities for him as his mother or father to care for him, to raise him in the fear and admonition of the Lord. God has commanded us to love our children in a particular way that we don't love everyone else in that same particular way. So there is a category error at play here as well. The violinist is not your child. These are different categories of people. You have obligations to the violinist, morally speaking, absolutely, as a Christian. But you have further obligations to your own child to provide for him, to nurture and care for him, to love him as your child. So, violinist, unpersuasive, and falls on its face when you actually just be a Christian about it and not a consequentialist about your ethics. All right. So, some pro-life argumentation that isn't good. Go with the least persuasive ones and then the most persuasive one and explain my problems with it. The first are sneaky arguments. And this is really a way, essentially a, a way to be pro-life that's palatable to the culture. So someone asks you if you're pro-life. Oh, yeah. But I'm not pro-life in the normal sense. I'm pro-life from womb to tomb. This is the sneaky evangelical, well, evangelifish, uh, stealing that term from... Uh, Doug Wilson, a uh, way to try to sneak around the offensiveness of being anti-abortion, of being against the murder of babies and the offering of them to false gods. Um, and the, the womb to tomb thing is, well, I, I'm, I'm exhaustively pro-life. I, I, I am uh, I'm also pro-immigration and poverty fighting and and i'm against systemic racism and you start lumping in all these other categories of things that you're against as well and it's supposed to uh pacify the pro murder person because it's the talking points that they agree with but this is just a way of hiding from the argument and if they're savvy enough they won't fall for it and they'll still say, but, but you're still against abortion, right? And, you, and then, you gr- then, then the evangelical fish begrudgingly says, oh, yeah, I am. But I'm also for, and on and on it goes. And there's also the, 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 the Bible isn't really clear about how we should deal with this on a legal level. This was promoted recently by 
popular evangelical pastor and teacher Tim Keller. Or his son, we don't know because we don't know who uses his social media account anymore. Uh, I have a suspicion it was his son, um, but it's a suspicion I can't verify. But he essentially made the argument that the Bible doesn't tell me the best way to legislate against abortion in any given legal circumstance. And this shows an ignorance of both his own confessional standards as a PCA minister, uh, who is supposed to affirm the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, and the Bible. As we just explained and read and walked through, the Bible is clear both on a legal and moral level about this issue, because if you're going to make just laws, and they're going to be genuinely just, morally speaking, where will you turn to make them? Where will you go? Your own imagination? I think this is going to be fair to everyone. No. We go to God's word. What does murder deserve? Death. Okay, done deal. What is murder? Taking of innocent life. Done deal. Is abortion murder? If it's the taking of a baby's life, absolutely. It's taking, if it's taking the life of an image bearer of God in the womb, absolutely. And that's what all abortions are. So those are, another example would be one, again, popular evangelifish, Russell Moore, um, arguing that uh, the reason, so, so it's, it's shifting, this is a way to shift the goalpost. Abortion is bad, but we should be more focused on fighting the things that cause abortions. And then he lists all kinds of, it's because people have lost faith in the church, in their communities, and the government to provide for them, and that's why they kill their babies. No. One, even if that's correct, it, it doesn't justify murder. Be like saying that someone killing their five-year-old is justified somehow because, well, the church wasn't helping them enough to care for their kid and he was rowdy all the time and she just couldn't handle anymore or, or if the father does it. That Because, again, sometimes the, the father of the child is, threatens or strong-arms the mother. I, I, either one of them. If they kill their five-year-old, we don't ask those kinds of questions about it. Well, they're mitigating circumstances. They, they lost trust in, in society. And so they killed their kid. No. No. Sin is the cause. Are there circumstances that make people more tempted, more prone to certain sins? Yes. Are they always responsible for their sins? And do sins always originate in the human heart? Yes. So there's the blame shifting. There's the Bible doesn't really tell me how to deal with this approach. And then there's the I'm pro-life all across the board. Please don't get mad at me approach. Let's not do any of those. Let's be clear. Abortion is murder. God forbids it. That is sufficient. Then there's the legal arguments. There's some who take an approach of getting wrapped up and tied down and focused on the unconstitutionality 
of abortion. And while it's true, there's nothing in the Constitution that affords anyone the right to murder their child. If we ground such arguments against abortion in the legal system, when the legal system turns against us, we have nothing to stand on to oppose it. In all truthfulness, the most effective men and women out there who have been opposing abortion have been the ones who are the ones who have been doing it standing on the word of God. Being clear, giving people the gospel who are seeking to murder the image bearer in their womb. Those are the people who have truly been the most effective. Even if the numbers game doesn't add up, because they've been faithful to what God says about it. And legal arguments don't answer the moral question. You, you could demonstrate that the Constitution doesn't deal with all of these things, and that doesn't end the argument. The person can simply say, well, I reject the Constitution as a binding document on morality. And we're back to square one. Or they'll say, we, we just we, we need to tear everything down and make a new government, which some have been speaking about doing in response to this. So that doesn't cut it either. Well, the legal arguments matter. They're, they, they don't answer the fundamental questions surrounding the issue. And then we have probably the strongest one that exists, but again, I think there's issues with this, is the SLED argument. And essentially, this tries to take the approach of convincing the, the pro-murder person that the baby that they are going to murder is in fact a person. And the approach goes like this. It's an acronym for size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. And first one, size, is, is you, you would say, hey, the, the, the unborn baby is smaller than you. But size doesn't justify you killing them. Uh, the, the value of a human is not based on their size. You don't justify killing a four-year-old because they're smaller than you. So why are you saying hey, this thing is a, a microscopic entity in the womb, and that means I can kill it. There's not too many people that say that, but, but essentially the, the, the gist is, what's the difference between us and the baby in the womb? Size is one of the differences. The second one is level of development. And this is where you say, okay, so some of the arguments are for abortion, for baby murder, is, well, the baby isn't fully cognitive. One, how do you know this? Because what is cognition? Two, uh, would you, uh, well, two, they're drawing an arbitrary line. Why is cognition what grants someone personhood? Why is that the thing that gives them personhood and value? And if so, are you okay with murdering people who are retarded? And I use that in the most literal sense of the word. 
uh, are you okay with that? Should we murder them? Some people will say yes. But, but, and that's part of why I have a problem with this argument, which I'll get to. Um, but that, that's the gist of it is, hey, why is development, why are you drawing the line at cognition and not somewhere else? And why, why don't you kill a bunch of other people? Why don't you justify killing a bunch of other people who are not as developed as a full adult? Simply because they, they're not developed in other ways. Um, there's an arbitrary line being drawn. Next one is environment. So, because they're not out in the world, you're, 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 and again, this kind of argumentation has actually pushed the other side. They recognize the inconsistency and they just bite the bullet. Where a couple of years ago, I remember some legislation happening, I believe in New York, where you could kill a baby shortly after he was born. Still. So, so, this kind of argumentation has been effective in just pushing them farther into insanity. Um, so it's done something, but but that's the next one is environment. So they're in the womb, and then you can kill them there. But if you wait a couple of days, they come out of the womb, and you're now you're not okay with killing them anymore. That's an arbitrary line. Um, the person isn't a person based on where they are in the world. It's not what makes them a person. Last one is degree of dependency. This is a common one because the argument is, why do I have to let this baby use my body to survive? No one has a right to my body to use it to survive, which again is the violinist argument just in a more simplistic form. No one has the right to demand that, that, they, that they can use my body to survive. It's like, um, okay, so what, what happens when the baby comes out of the womb? They still need you to survive. They still depend upon you. The, the dependency is not gone. A two-year-old, a three-year-old, the dependency is not gone. A four-year-old even, even to smaller children, dependency isn't gone. So basically what, what you demonstrate through this argument is that size, level development, environment, and degree of dependency all apply to small children just as much as it applies to a, a child in the womb. And if the pro-murder person wants to murder the child in the womb based upon these criteria, then they are also okay with just killing small children. And what we've learned by using this argument, and this is my problem with it, is that they're absolutely okay with killing small children. They're okay with killing them spiritually by convincing them that they're not the way that God made them. They're okay with killing them physically through abandonment or straight up just murder out of the womb, in the womb. It increasingly does not matter. So, so the, the reason why I have, that's one reason why I have a problem with the slight argument. Um, the, the other reason is that determining personhood is, is more, is, is deeper for the Christian than simply these kinds of contingent factors. It's being made in the image of God. That is what distinguishes you from, because what happens with this 
is the pro-murder vegan claps back at you and says, why are you still killing animals? Because you said cognition doesn't matter, size doesn't matter, level development doesn't matter, environment doesn't matter, dependency doesn't matter, on whether a life is valuable. And now it just it gets turned around on you so fast. And you don't have a meaningful, non-arbitrary way if you're sticking to this. Because one of the supposed uh, attractions of this argument is that it doesn't use any religion. It doesn't use the Bible. It doesn't use religious argumentation. That's not a feature. That's a bug. That, open, that opens the doors wide open. You have conceded the secular ground upon which they're standing. You've tried to step onto a, into a godless world and say that life is valuable and meaningful. Guess what? It's not. If, if, if there is no God in the world, as Paul said, there is no hope. No meaning. No personhood. No value that's inherent to that personhood. It's all arbitrary. Pointing out that they're arbitrary just allows them to point out that you're being just as arbitrary by saying that their arbitrariness is a bad reason. In a godless world, everything is arbitrary. So that's my problem with that argument. I think some of the points in it can be used effectively if done carefully. But again, I just gave a couple of ways where they can clap back at you uh, pretty well um, if they're thinking on their feet. All right. So let's think through getting to the gospel. It starts with pushing the antithesis, challenging the person on meta questions, moving the argument just a- away from the particulars of abortion to the worldview that is justifying baby murder. What is a person? What is right and wrong? Why is murder wrong? Why can't I murder you right now? Let's stop it. What what ethical system can you give me that would justify me not doing that to you? Another way is to take some of the common arguments that pro-murder advocates often uh, make about other issues and press them on it for consistency. A lot of them probably thought that the government mandating vaccines was fine, but they'll say that anti-abortion legislation is not okay. And the reason they give is, well, that you're controlling what I can do with my body or what, what is inside my body. The government can't tell me that. Bodily autonomy. This is one of the reasons why some of the arguments against vaccine mandates by conservative people were also really bad. Because they fed right into the pro-abortion argument. My body, my choice. That's, that's not the reason why it's wrong. So you have to be careful when you press for consistency here, because you have to make sure that you oppose the government interfering on other levels for good reasons and are fine with the government, you know, interfering on this level for good reasons 
before you use that kind of argument. Because you don't want to get caught in the same trap. And they might try to use that on you. So there's that. Um, other questions like, what is a woman? Again, a lot of these people are uh, just yesterday in terms of the way time and history seems to be running at this point. Uh, recent memory, they were arguing that the, what a woman is is not very well defined. And now suddenly, women's rights are in danger. Whose rights? Women's rights? What's a woman? Or the argument is, men are telling women what they can do with their bodies. Are, is it just men? That are being told? Um, or is it just, is it just men that are telling and just women that are being told? Are, are, is the gender binary now back in play simply because this is the issue? So you can press them on that. And then they might concede the ground. They might say, oh, well, it's not just women. It's birthing persons as well. It, it, all birthing persons are being told what they must do with their bodies. You go, okay. Um, what, 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 so so is, it, is it still a feminist issue now? What, what, what's going on here? You can press those kinds of things. You can press those issues. And, and when you press on those meta questions, you'll get to, which is, and when you present the, the anti-child murder argument from scripture, you get to the meta issues. You're going to get to those meta questions. What is this world that we live in like? Who made it? Why did they make it? Who were we? Do we have rights and obligations to one another and to our creator? These are the kind of meta questions you want to get to, and this gets you straight to the gospel. What you must remember is what I said at the beginning. This is spiritual warfare. The pro-death person, the pro-baby murder person. They hate children, they hate women, and they hate God. They can deny the first two. They probably won't deny the third one. But it's true. Scripture makes this clear. Jesus made this clear. Murder begins in the human heart, as he explains in Matthew 5. There are many jumping off points from any of these arguments into the gospel. We'll look at the violinist as a sort of example. When you respond to the violinist with a firm and hearty, uh, absolutely, I will save this man's life and sacrifice nine months of mine. Say, because I'm following the pattern of my master who suffered far worse than being cooped up in a hospital bed for nine months in my place to give me life everlasting. He suffered and died for my sins. I didn't just have a sickness problem. I had a sin problem, just like you do. A rebellion problem against my creator and yet he graciously saved me out of his great love. And so I want to do the same, not just for this hypothetical violinist, but for the babies that you want to kill. Obviously, it's a bit truncated and brief, but, but there's an example. 
there's so many ways to just springboard off into the gospel out of any of these lines of, of reasoning. Um, and, and we must remember that's the goal. The people that we're speaking with about these issues are sinners in need of a savior. They need the gospel. They don't need to just be defeated in debate, though that's necessary and even commanded by God in scripture. We tear down these spiritual strongholds because that's what they are. We rip them down brick by brick. But we must show them a better way. The way of Christ. The way of life. That God's word is truly good and provides a better way to live. The only way to have true life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So in all of your conversations and arguments, remember the goal, remember the reason. Be bold, be unafraid, do not sin, and declare the truth of God's word clearly. And he always works through his word. All right. Well, thank you for joining me tonight for a special surprise Bible study. Um, let me pray and then I will take questions. Turn to Psalm 139. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. All right. Question time. I'm going to scroll through. See if there's any uh, things going on. It's a very frightening gift being. Oh, here's a, a question from NN. Would the baby be first if the mother was in danger or is it the mother that has to be saved first? It's not a matter of prioritization. You do everything you can to save both. You, you just, you do whatever is necessary to save both of them. Um, the goal is to save both lives. It would be no different if you had two, you had two people suffering, two tables next to each other, are you like, well, I'm just going to save this person first. No, you get the whole gang in there and you try to save both of them. Um, now, if a mother said, save my baby, I think that you can honor that and save the baby. 
so you still try to save the mother but i think in that case you could absolutely prioritize um if the mother just said save my baby um i think that would be a, a scenario in which you could you would be right in doing so just a uh quick announcement before we get into any more questions um for the other topical study not the surprise topical study um but the scheduled topical study the date for that is going to change uh no one knows about this this is the first time i'm ever announcing it to anyone um the date about the date for during the week for that is going to change because of work so just so you guys know anyways back continue yeah, I will let you do that <laughs> later, but thanks. Um, yeah, I'm sure there'll be an announcement about that. Yeah, the, the day for topical study is going to be flying over the place because of the boys who are covering for me. So just keep an eye out for announcements regarding it as we go. Um, Caden answered that question as well. Good answer. Uh, what do you do when you want to give up on the world because of what's happening in the world? You read your Bible. You read 1 Corinthians 15.25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. You take heart in that. Jesus is going to win. Believe the, you read the Bible, you study the Bible, and you believe what it says. And you don't give up because God, one, can't, giving up is an impossibility uh, for him because he possesses all power and might. Um, and two, uh, he's made promises that we can bank on. Jesus rose from the dead. Everything else is in the bag. Um, what, in fact, what's happening in the world in many ways is motivation to fight harder and not give up. Uh, Kim has a brief question. It's not a relevant question. Yeah, I, I, I know it's discouraging. Um, but th that's, that's where we have, I mean, that's part of why there's so many commands in Scripture to encourage one another with the truth. And there's a reason they're in there is because discouragement is what happens in a fallen world. So I'm not minimizing your discouragement. I feel it too. But uh, there's a lot of things to be encouraged about. And uh, God's word gives us a lot of a lot of things. All right, Cabin, what's up? Um, so some of this was interesting in regards to some stuff I'd read from Nancy Piercy on the subject. Uh-huh. Um, and she sort of goes that the case for personhood rests on like human biology, I think is the phrase that she uses. So like there's a person who comes back with like the whole animal objection. Uh, like 
you say that it a distinctly like a just like a, a distinctly human a person is distinctly human and their personhood is only the only qualifier for that is that they are a human being biologically regardless again of the whole sled you can take those categories in but those only apply to humans and i had sort of thought i i, <laughs> I had sort of thought that that was kind of like the way to go in arguing by just going after making definitions of personhood because that's kind of what this debate that's kind of what i thought this debate was about was like what does what constitutes person because to that person you can say does uh well, was Hitler right when he decided that eight million Jews weren't like quote people, and and so like you, you can kind of get into an area where a lot of people will be uncomfortable affirming the same kind of rhetoric that justified the Holocaust and slavery, which is namely that a group of human beings can be considered less than a person based on some external qualifier that isn't a legitimate biological one. So I, I was just kind of wondering if. You sort of had anything to say to that point is that useful in an argument because that's kind of where i go typically is the whole like person personhood argument i don't know so here's here's my issue um one and, and this is where i do part ways with certain of schaefer's children apologetically and i's biological children obviously um unfortunately his most well-known son is an absolute pagan, tragically. But um, this is where I part ways with someone like Nancy Piercy, um, where I don't think that those arguments are always unhelpful, but they can't stand alone. And I wouldn't go there first. I would lay the groundwork for a positive presentation of human personhood being rooted and grounded in the image of God. Because what that because here here's the way someone could rebut to that reasoning. If you go to a biological argument, and this is the same reason why I'm against that kind of thing, for that being the sole argument you use in a, a transgenderism argument as well. Biological essentialism is not what we are as Christians, or not not the view we hold as Christians. We're more than our biology, and, and so that's one point that you end up granting to them because they are biological essentialists. They're just, they're, they are drawing the lines arbitrarily. I think it can be helpful to point that out and, and, and pressing upon the less seared conscience. Hey, you don't want to be, nobody, nobody wants to be like Hitler, but also comparisons to Hitler are pretty overdone, a bit of a trope. So I would probably pick someone else. Um, but and no one wants to be compared to American slavers. Um, and, and, and so you, you, can, you can utilize that kind of rhetoric, and it could be effective. Um, but one of my issues with it is the, the pushback can simply be something along these lines. Where human person, wh wh they could simply ask you, what makes a human not a monkey? And if you've been pressed into biological essentialism, you have no answer to this. Because your answers will all fit the same arbitrary categories that, they're use that you push them on with the kind of sled reasoning. 
you see where I'm you see what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. All of your answers, cog that's what I was pointing out earlier. Cognitive function, et cetera, et cetera. All that you, you try to make say, well, a human person is someone who is distinct from an animal in these ways. They're all going to be arbitrary lines that you're now drawing based upon location, function, reasoning capacity, ethical, whatever you pick, it's going to be, and they're going to have counterexamples on the wazoo because they, they're used to arguing the evolution argument probably as well. Maybe. Um, so they'll probably pull out, well, these monkeys engage in this kind of thing and this kind of thing, and it seems like they're reasoning here and da 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 da. Um, and so that's why I, I want to stick to a human persons are more valuable than animals because they're made in the image of God. And that is the reason why God says, hey, if anyone's offering sacrifices to Moloch in my town, get them out of here. Because they're offering human sacrifices and it actually upends all of the liberal testament scholarship that, that tries to argue that israel offered human sacrifices um because it makes it clear that that wasn't what they're commanded to do that if they find evidence of that it's because there were guys breaking that command in leviticus <laughs> um and and doing that exact thing that they were commanded not to do um that's a side note but yeah, so that, that's the reason I push back on that kind of argumentation um, is because it, it, it grounds it. it you're, 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 you're sticking your toe in the secular pool and saying, hey, I, I, can, I can play your game uh, on your grounds, and uh, it's not going to end well. If, if they're savvy enough to counter you, most of them won't be. And that's probably why that kind of argument gets by. And that's the reason the sled is so popular is because most of them aren't quick enough on their feet to realize there's an easy counter to this but as soon as you find one that is right you get, you get smoked well that rings pretty close to some of the critiques bonson makes of schaefer in the back end of uh the presuppositional this is which i haven't even read so there we go <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's that's literally like what he's getting into <laughs> in the defended part of uh presuppositional apologetic stated defended ah what a mouthful but yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yep. All right. Any other questions I'm missing? It's like we're in the uh, posting animal gifts mode. Uh, Crystal Fire answered that one for me. Right. I think that's it. Um, so unless otherwise, uh, unless something else comes up that I feel compelled while tending the garden of my backyard, uh, we'll be done. <laughs> <laughs>